As far as I'm concerned, as long as that same respect and recognition is not shown toward every one of our people in this country, it doesn't exist for me. And during the few moments that we have left, we want to have just an off-the-cuff chat between you and me, us. We want to talk right down to earth in a language that everybody here can easily understand. Welcome back to another episode of The Malcolm Effect. Joining me today, we have a very well-known academic and professor, Professor Frank Wilderson, joining us for the first time on The Malcolm Effect. How are you, Professor? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Thank you for taking out the time to speak to us. And joining me are my amazing co-hosts, voices you're familiar with, Deej and Christian. It's been a while since we've been together, but I'm glad we made this happen. So I guess in this episode, I want to speak about all things Afro-pessimism and who better than to speak to than yourself. So my first question is for maybe some of my listeners may have heard about Afro-pessimism or unfamiliar, familiar with the term, but not quite familiar with what it is as a theoretical position. So in your own words, I know this, I guess the time is very limited, but Succinctly, what would you say Afro-pessimism is if you were asked? Well, I, I would say succinctly, but it probably would not be succinct. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. Absolutely fine. Yes. I would say that Afro-pessimism, first of all, from my perspective, is dot, dot, dot. And second of all, it is growing like, a, like mushrooms, you know, into, the, into what Black activists, intellectuals, and artists actually need. So what it is to me and what it is, what it was to us, you know, back in 1999, 2000, 2000 to 2004 is maybe different. However, given that it is a meta, M-E-T-A critique of theories of suffering in the, in its, in its first instance. And by critique, it doesn't mean wholesale condemnation, but we should think of critique as as assessment. So what is it assessing? It is assessing the first principles and the constituent elements of two major modes of thought to begin with, Marxism and and psychoanalysis, in order to say that uh, they are inadequate to thinking through, and I'm going to say this word, to thinking through comprehensively the suffering of black of black people. So in other words, if 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 in the medical field someone was a was a a cancer researcher, an oncologist, and they wrote papers on the theory of the cause of cancer and which would be a which would be like a descriptive a descriptive analysis of cancer and then on the the other uh, plank of their intervention would be a prescriptive analysis, which would be an answer in medical terms, what is to be done in order to alleviate this suffering or to cure it? Well, that would be a theoretical intervention into the field of cancer. And a meta-theoretical intervention would actually look at the exegesis of the work that the person has done, we look at his first principles, we look at his, him, or their, her, or their assumptive logic and the constituent elements of the argument that makes that first theoretical intervention true. So it would be a, it would be an assessment of 
how the work was done to come to some kind of conclusion with respect to the adequacy of the work. And so what we were seeing is something that was not new to us. When I say us, I mean people like Kiana Ross at Northwestern, Jared Sexton here at UC Irvine, Zakia Iman Jackson at some point was with us, you know, Greg Caldwell, and there, was, there are many, many other, other people, Sarah Han, Connie, Connie Wu, Connie Wan rather. What we were seeing was that in our political work in various parts of, of the San Francisco Bay Area, it felt like the symptomatic expressions Black people in multicultural and multiracial coalitions was being crowded out or shut down as, in quotes, oppression Olympics, and that it was it was treated as a kind of excess that would be divisive to to the coalition. That was on one hand. Then in our for those of us, uh, some of, some of them were undergrads, but those of us who were graduate students, in our seminars on psychoanalysis and, and Marxism particularly after we read Orlando Patterson's uh, Slavery and Social Death, and after we read Sidia Hartman's Scenes of Subjection, and after we read David Marriott's On Black Men. So you think about this, Slavery and Social Death comes out in 1982. Sidia Hartman writes Scenes of Subjection in 1997. David Marriott writes On Black Men in 2000. And leading up to all that is our work on Fanon's Black Skin, White Mask and some of the work of Hortense Billers. And we kind of put all that together into a constellation to say, all this stuff from these writers that I just mentioned is actually forming a structural critique of the work that we're doing in our seminars to show how the work we're doing in our seminars on Marxism and psychoanalysis, and then right below that post-colonialism and, and indigenism are inadequate to thinking through black suffering. So it was a meta critique. And the reason why I stick with the, the meta and, and critique is, is because um, the other conclusion that we came to is that all of these isms from from feminism that was derived from psychoanalysis, like the work of Kasia Silverman or Julia Kristeva, uh, or post-colonialism that, that borrows from many different sources, including Marx or indigenism, what we were seeing was that they all could, had the, they had the rhetorical and the conceptual capacity to actually offer in an idea, a way forward on, of the other side of the kinds of repression that they were talking about. And that was precisely the thing that was not available to Black people, was, was a, a sentence, a conceptual intervention as to what would Black freedom look like. And it was that absence of a prescriptive gesture, when you look at the comprehensive structure of Black suffering, it was that absence which creates in everyone else's psyche a kind of anxiety. Fanon calls it negrophobogenesis. And we saw that anxiety in the classroom as well as in the as well as on the street. And it was it was trying to offer an understanding of the singular nature of black suffering and why that singular nature A could not be expressed through these other forms and B why the other forms of redress necessarily were, were coupled necessarily with a, a continuation of Black abjection. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that answer. It kind of leads quite nicely into my next question. You mentioned the inadequacies of Marxism specifically to speak to the Black condition. So I would love to kind of delve deeper into that. What is it in your understanding 
or where is it Marxism fails in adequately understanding Black suffering or the Black condition? Yes, I'm, I'm going to qualify that a bit. I'm going to say that Marx didn't necessarily fail because he didn't have the tools, you know, that would actually come to, to, come to the German-speaking wor- world about 30 years after he wrote Das Kapital, when, when, when Freud and writes, um, Brewer writes Notes on Hysteria in 1899. So if he, I'm, I'm going to say that Marxists after that, especially the Frankfurt School, who didn't put this all together from a Black perspective, they might have failed. But Marx, Marx was a very rational kind of thinker. And there was no theory of the unconscious that was available to him as he's writing the Grundrisse and then later Das Kapital. So what he's not able to see are the pleasures, the production of pleasure that comes from anti-Black violence. I, I think there's about eight times in which he talks about the slave in Das Kapital. And, it, you know, one of these times he gets it right, but he doesn't pursue it. You know, when he, when he says that the slave is a speaking implement. And at that point in, in, in the first 500 pages of Das Kapital, you actually want him to stop and say, oh, wow a speaking implement, because he's very clear that a speaking implement and a worker are not the same. He just has kind of hit upon something and he moves on. Now, when he worked for, I think it was the uh, the New York Herald, I hope I have the name correctly. As I said, I haven't done much of this research in the past year. But when he worked for the New York Herald, he really couldn't understand, you know, when he went to the South, the economics behind saying to someone that you have to pick 500 pounds of cotton a day. And if you don't, we will open your back in the evening to the point where you're, you're bleeding from whips. And in the morning, you, you, you're, still, you're still in need or the demand is still there for you to pick 500 pounds. Nor did he understand the kind of bacchanal, the pleasures that go into, that went into families beating slaves just for sport. This is something that you actually find very clearly in the book, 12 Years a Slave, but it is also something that can't be, can't be translated into some form of contingency, like the slave did this, Patsy in 12 Years a Slave did this, and then she was beaten. And so as a result, Steve McQueen, who I love as a, as a filmmaker dearly, but he actually allowed for the script to talk about Patsy's beating as though it was triggered by the jealousy of the slave master who was raping her. And in point of fact, if you read the book, you see that Patsy and other slaves were beaten as a form of spectacle when the family went on picnics. They would just come get a slave and bring them to the picnic and and beat them. So to come full circle to your question, one of the things that Marxism did not have the tools to do was to say, how is a pleasure produced as opposed to simply surplus value? And B, how does the production of pleasure through the mutilation of black bodies lead, contribute to the regeneration of the working class as well as the ruling class in the same way that that rest or sex or food contributes to the regeneration of the working class? And my final point is that he didn't understand why hegemony does not exist in the master-slave relation when it is so vital to the capitalist worker relation. 
Yeah, so I'm hoping we'll get to talk about the unconscious and and a little bit on later on in this episode, but kind of to follow up on Momadou's question about like what how why does a Marxist analysis fall short of being able to describe or be able to analyze the conditions of Black people? I wanted to turn to um, your book, particularly chapter six, Afro in Afro pessimism, of course. In this and in this section, you start to talk about gratuitous violence, and you go on to talk about the difference between Fanon and Wretched of the Earth, and the Fanon who wrote Black Skin and White Mask, and that the former perfor- pursues restoration by doing away with the settler, and the latter pers- uh, pursues restoration by doing away with the human, and so that there's this difference between the black and the non-black, and the black cannot be made analogous to the non-black because of a distinction in the violence that 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 either is experiencing. But then what do we make of Blacks in Africa who do hold the position of indigeneity, for example? And what about the category, and what about the category of Black renders the analytic of class slash settler slash gender insufficient? Um, I mean, there are significant amounts of Black people that occupy these categories, not just taxonomically, but as subjects, or if you want to say objects within these processes. How then do we reconcile the various categories that Black people occupy do they act do is the category of black just the essential the foundational is it a category that runs in tandem with these various other categories yeah that's my question can you give me an example christian of of the thing that gets your goat the most for example or or the critic's goat momadou and i were recently in in senegal and we found ourselves in a sweatshop. And obviously, these, and it was mostly boys in the sweatshop. And most of these, and obviously, you know, most of these boys are, are working. They are workers. They are producing a clothing for some sort of boss. I mean, I would assume that the boss is, is Black. And so therefore, the category that these, that these boys inhabit is not just the category of Black, but it is also the category of worker. And they and the experience or the violence that they suffer is due to their position within that category as worker, as it may also as it is also as they also experience certain oppression in the category of black as well. So I guess that's my question is, can the analytic of class just not be applied to these young boys in this factory, in this sweatshop and in Dakar? Or is it simply the. Uh, the master-slave relation? Okay, that's a good question. And I think that the shorthand answer would be that Afro-pessimism as a lens of interpretation is not the totality of Blackness or Black suffering. However, we would argue that Afro-pessimism is the truth of Black suffering and, and, and Black positionality. So not the totality, but the truth. And so when we say it is the truth of of Blackness, Black suffering, and Black positionality, we're assuming that the interlocutor on the other side of the conversation wants the same thing. And that same thing is the end of the world. So that the, 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 the actual, the answer to the question only makes sense if the interlocutor is a a putative revolutionary. If the interlocutor is asking 
is is building an archive or investing in an archive which, which are asking questions as to how do we reform the injustices of civil society and there's really no productive way that afro pessimism can have a conversation so as i as i said earlier uh, to come full circle to to your your question christian afro pessimism is an assessment of marxism and an assessment of psychoanalysis without throwing the baby up with the bathwater. We would never support, for example, a black capitalist or a black dictator or a group of people in the 19th century from the United States who are black who go to Liberia to colonize it or the descendants of those Americans in Liberia who may still have a significant amount of privilege and power over the Africans that their ancestors met and colonized when they went down there. So, you know, politically, we're not for any of these things and we would not deny, we would not deny that surplus value can flow from black sweatshop workers to black capitalists. So that's my first point. My next point is that is this. If you are really concerned with with having what, what Zizek calls a revolutionary cognitive map, a cognitive map of the problem, as opposed to if you're concerned with the widgets of how to make people's life better day to day, because that's not a, I don't think that's a scale of abstraction that Afro-pessimism can necessarily help you with or have a productive conversation with. But if you want to have this scope of abstraction at the level of which paradigms, if they were to be completely undone, would make it impossible for the world to be as it is. Then we would say, through through anecdote, I would say that if you just go a few miles, if you cross the Senegalese border into Mauritania, what you will find is that there are depending upon whether you believe the United Nations or a guy named Samuel Cotton, who was a black American who wrote a book about this when he went undercover into Mauritania, what you will find are 250,000 to 500,000 black people who are chattel slaves in chains. You also find a class of, of, of a racialized class of people who are masters. And in, in Arabic, I think the word is B-E-Y, D-E-N-E-S, Bedanes, is what they call themselves, which is loosely translated, I, I think Cotton translates that as whites. That is really key to me. Why is that key? Because if you look at the pictures in jo- uh, Joseph, Co- sorry, Samuel Cotton's book on chattel slavery in Mauritania, you will see that the masters and the slaves, if they were to rock up to New York City, they would both be accosted by the police through the same anti-Black violence. That's, but they know their difference through one are one group is more Islamic, but even that isn't quite the difference. It's 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 the racial signification of one group and the racial signification of another group that look so much alike that the cops would call them both black. My third point is that when the Baydanes cross the border into Senegal and take their slaves to Dakar to set up shops or a trade or whatever, the Senegalese government does not liberate those people. So I guess when, when you look at it, at it more deeply, the Senegalese government in Samuel Cotton's book was asked, you know, 
well, why is it that so many people are border people and perhaps, you know, Senegalese who have been captured and brought into slavery, why do you allow these masters who are mainly uh, Islamic masters, but who are also look in facial, seemingly Negroid or Bantu in their, in their anthropological way they look, why do you allow them to keep their slaves as slaves when they come to Senegal? And some of the answers are, you know, are just alibis. Uh, they're true. But one is that, you know, Saudi Arabia and other countries have said that, uh, you know, we must support the Palestinians and we cannot talk about Arabs, Arab slavery. And that will, if we talk about Arab slavery, it will look like we're anti-Arab or we're anti-Palestinian, all sorts of things. What I'm trying to say is that there's something that the sweatshop in Senegal knows rationally, and that and that power is situated in the flow of surplus value from the black workers to the black capitalists. But there's something more essential that builds the institutionality of Africa and everywhere else that the collective unconscious knows about who is black and who is not. And that rules even across borders. That's what I would say. I would not throw out the first analysis, but I would say it is important, but inessential if your concern is how to undo the world. Yeah, I guess my follow-up question is then like, is the analytic, is the Afro-pessimist analytic then one of, because what you're saying is that there is chattel slavery, slavery in Mauritania, and and however be as terrible the exploitation being experienced by these children in Dakar is, they are technically not you know, chattel slaves. So is is the is the analytic of of applying to black people the category of slave, is that just a potential category? I guess the reason I also asked this is, is because I was I think it was either in Afro-pessimism or a discussion you were having with Sadia Hartman is that even for, you said, even for free Blacks, it is the it is the potential to be the slave that is applicable to all Black people. So it, I guess, like, is this category of slave, even if that is not the, if that is not the violence that is being directly experienced by a particular group of, of, of Black people, are, is, are you applying it because it is something that can be experienced by all Black people? Is that... I do see the I do see the problem of, of what I said before. The first thing that we have to do is divorce the experience of slavery from the definition of slavery. That's the first thing. So that how one experiences one's social death is not essential to one being socially dead. That's that's the first thing. So that in, in so in the in the former analysis, both the, the black capitalist and the sweatshop, the black capitalist who is eating meat and having all kinds of uh, luxuries and fancy cars and exploiting the black worker, he, she, or they is as socially dead as the black person in the sweatshop, even though the life experience is different. And 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 this is. This is really foundational to to the constituent elements of all isms. One has to understand the oppression through, one has to understand paradigmatic oppression as a relational dynamic, not as a lived experience. And that's 
so that's how I would I would talk about I would talk about that. It's not that all blacks have the potential to be slaves. It's that blackness is actually slaveness par excellence. And the reason that I say that is because it's, we're getting to the weeds here. But one of the things that Orlando Patterson has not accounted for in slavery and social death, which is how we have kind of hijacked or tweaked or extended the calculus of slavery and social death, depending upon which verb structure you want to use. But he's not accounted for what do, how do we theorize a sentient being who had no prior life, who had no life prior to social death? How do we theorize a sentient being who had no life prior to social death? And in order, and the reason that he hasn't done that is because he thinks blackness as a kind of, I would just assume, given the symptoms, given a symptomatic reading of or slavery and social death, he thinks blackness is a kind of of a cultural, or maybe even cultural or national identity. And what we're saying is that with the advent of the Arab slave trade that brought in the uh, China, people who would become Chinese, people who would become Iranians, people who would become Iraqis, people who would become Indians. They weren't Indians, Iraqis, Iranians yet. They, they weren't even Arabs yet. And Moroccan Jews, with, with, the, with the vamping of those people on East Africa, there was the production of a new paradigm and a new paradigmatic category, which was the Black. And that did not, that is not a cultural identity. There are many cultural identities inside of Blackness. Just like to get back to your original question, Christian, there are many economic divisions and, and statuses inside of Blackness. But in Blackness as a paradigmatic position is general dishonor, NATO alienation, and openness to a kind of violence that needs no contingency, real or imagined. To, to set about, you know, a, a complete open vulnerability, as Hortense Spurs would say. So I guess what I'm saying is that in every society, it is necessary for the unconscious to know who is and who isn't Black. And, and, and even in Mauritania, which I brought up to begin with as a kind of absurd example, even in Mauritania, when visually they're all Black, this division is needed psychically to produce to produce on one side those who are alive and those who are dead. And I might add to make to make Mauritania to make Mauritania and the relationship with Senegal even more absurd. You know, Mauritania and Chad and the Sudan they've had all these pressures from people going back at least to the 1960s to uh, stop these practices of chattel slavery, and the Mauritanians have actually manumitted, freed slaves three times leading up to, constitutionally, leading up to 1980. And one of the constitutional changes says that anyone who converts to Islam will be freed from their chains. You know what? That has never happened, but it's on the books. So that's what I'm saying. I, I'll, I'll take any follow-up here, Christian. I think actually Khadija and Momadou may want to have some follow-up follow regarding the issue of natal alienation? I have a follow-up along the same kind of realm of thinking, and I want us to think to other contexts, perhaps, and think about the possibilities when we shift to these um, particular contexts. So I'm just thinking about the context of, for example, my, my where I'm from, Ghana, where there are oftentimes very distinct ethnic strife, right? And a distinct 
kind of ethnic classes who have a particular form of hegemony um, against others, right? How will we apply your analysis in this space? So what does Afro-pessimism offer us if we are to analyze the interrelations of different, for example, African ethnic groups within their specific context? Uh, (laughs) Well, I mean, I, I guess I'd have to say, first off, I'm open to that. But I don't know if we can, and and again, I want to say I'm open to it, but I also want to say, I don't know if we should. You know, I grew up, I was, you know, a a tween and a teenager during the the Biafran conflict. And I would, I'm not, well, let me ask you a question. Why would you, why do you want to do that? I suppose I want to do that because, and I think the reason why I'm giving this particular case study is because as someone who was kind of born and raised in Ghana and who comes from a particular ethnic group where our ethnic group, there is a distinct class divide from other ethnic groups insofar as I come from a place in Ghana, the Upper East Region, which is a borderland between Ghana and Burkina Faso, a place where development on any scales happen much later, a place where there is ongoing ethnic conflict and a place where the the representation or the idea of my ethnic group, when you ask a sort of wider context of Ghanaian understandings of the self, gets kind of erased, right? I'm, I'm thinking of this as a nation where it's a black population, whether or not each individual necessarily understands what that means or identifies with the category of blackness is something that should and could be explored. But I wonder, I suppose, if we are thinking about the possibilities of or the, the the kind of category of the slave being an inherent possibility of anyone who is kind of relegated or ca- categorized as black, what does it mean for the Black who exists in a context where their only other interaction is with the other Black, the other Black who is distinctly different from themselves, the other Black who they view as their oppressor, and where class seems to be quite easy to analyse within this context, I wonder how the category of understanding the sort of master-slave relationship would work here. I'll go back to my original thing and say, I'm not sure. I'd I'd have to... And, you know, Mamadou, I don't, I don't know what Judy thinks of uh, Afro-pessimism, but when you get to her class, she might have something to say about that. Here's what I would, I, I can offer a kind of means of approach, but I'm not sure how useful it would be to understanding internecine conflict on the, on the ground and on the terms of the conflict on the ground. But what I would say is that I don't think that there is anyone on the African continent, on in in the Caribbean, in South America, in Europe, in North America, who whose psyche is is free from the tendrils of of anti-blackness as it exists and is produced in the in the in the wider world. That would be my first thing. I, I think such a person I would agree. I would agree. <laughs> yeah, because such a person would have have no radio They'd have no magazines, they'd have no television, and they just wouldn't be in contact. And so and so I'm going to say some things, but I'm not sure it's going to help us completely understand what's going on in the region that you're talking about, unless there's a clear-cut kind of manifestation that can be seen or can be excavated with a kind of exegesis of, of tweezers similar to what I talked about in Mauritania, where you've got two sets of black people, one calling themselves Muslim and white, and the other basically in, in chains. And um, and I would just say that one of the things I would be looking for if I 
was a scholar of this part of Ghana, I would be looking for the symptoms in the psyche of both groups that allow one group to know itself more through what Fanon calls lactification or hallucinatory whitening, or just simply allows one group to, to imagine itself more through the representational supports of the phallus and allows one group and the other group to be relegated to a kind of double lack. That's a very dangerous kind of intervention because it's in a purely psychoanalytic way, it, it, it suggests that that one group actually has representational supports in the symbolic order because it says it does, and the other group doesn't. And I would want to ratchet the scale of abstraction even higher to say, no, this is like these people think they're, they're Clarence Thomas or Barack Obama, and they're really just tropes of the larger non-Black imagination, but their, their sense of themselves as having phallic power manifests itself in really, really dangerous and destructive ways for the other group. So that's one thing I'd be looking at. And the last thing, a little anecdote I will, will say is that, you know, when I lived in South Africa, there's a department store called Sales House, and it's kind of like the Macy's of South Africa, uh, British owned. And there was a commercial in which it was scenes, a shot of, of a man and a woman each shot was a man of a woman dressed in traditional garb from various parts of Africa, Ashanti, Maasai, Buganda, Ndebele. And then they had a shot of a man and a woman model. And they said, and the, and the voiceover said, South African. And the woman was in a long backless evening dress and the man was in a tuxedo. So that to me is a symptom of a kind of South African, a black South African projection onto the rest of Africa, which was very dangerous because at that moment, what was starting was, was the banding about of the word carry carry, which meant foreigner coming from other parts of Africa to take our jobs. And so that was a projection of a, of a so-called innocent fashion advertisement to say in Africa, we are the civilized ones we have phallic power through evening dresses and tuxedos and all the representational supports that are implied in terms of power, money, knowledge, and technology from that. And so I, I guess what I'm trying to say is that that dynamic structures the unconscious everywhere. It may be harder to see, or it may take you longer to see it, but it structures the dynamic everywhere. And I would look to see, does it structure the dynamic in the region of Ghana that you're talking about. But that's but and if it and if it doesn't, then perhaps Afro pessimism can't help in that situation. Thank you. I think that was actually that's a thoughtful point that got me to think. And I was actually trying to follow your tool and try to get to the process of abstracting and getting to a point of which I, I actually could understand the dynamics more. And as I was doing that and I was I, I actually got to the point of thinking, well actually there is, whilst there was sort of inter-ethnic conflict that preceded colonial, colonialism and preceded, you know, the Empire of Britain being a sort of, you know, force within that context, there are clear kind of symbolic reproductions of that kind of imperial metric and that kind of imperial impetus that have a relevancy to this context. 
So thank you for that. I was like, yes, but then no, you know, no, but then actually, yes, there is the possibility for thinking, especially in the current iterations of what this conflict looks like. It definitely has elements of that particular affliction. Well, yes, and you know, and I'm glad you said the British colonialism because the British were the were the geniuses of of the mind game in colonialism in a way that the Portuguese were not, <laughs> you know, and in a way that the French, even if their their whole notion of the Ivoli could not reproduce. But you know, where the British went, you know, they produced the Shona in in, in phallic power contradistinction to the endebelli. They produced Lakosa in thought, power, representation, and contradiction to the to the Zulu. You know, they 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 so they didn't use the word white, but by sending certain groups of people to Christian schools, uh, making them civil servants, uh, allowing them to produce a Mandela and get all kinds of, of education amongst you know in South Africa there's a phrase called, oh you think you're a clever Kosa you know, which is really going right back to the British decision that these people in the Western Cape are the ones we are going to semi-develop. And these people around Durban and KwaZulu-Natal are the ones that we're going to underdevelop. And that, that even, even though I do not like the Encounter Freedom Party, and I believe they were, you know, fascist shock troops of the white regime, they clearly were produced through uneven development that was thought out, maybe not overtly through psychoanalysis, but thought out through the libidinal economy because the British didn't have the people, the manpower necessary to dominate on a individual basis. So thank you for reminding me about that. And you just mentioned the libidinal economy. So I want to take you back there before we lose it. And I know that that is a significant kind of analytical point for Afro-pessimism. And it's something that a lot of people have kind of asked, like, what is the libidinal economy? And I was thinking for our listeners and also for our own learning, if you could elaborate on the utility of the, well, what the libidinal economy means in the context of Afro-pessimist analysis and what it offers us as analysis. Well, anecdotally, I, I tell my undergraduates, you know, when you go home over the break and you see your friends working in Kinko's or at Burger King, and you say, well, I am a sophomore at UC Irvine. You're kind of, the, the juices inside your body get kind of revved up and in the way that a good drug will revved up the juices of your, in your brain, you know? And then someone else comes in, another person you went to high school with, and they say, oh, by the way, I'm finished my first year at Stanford, and all of a sudden, you begin to wilt. <laughs> so, in other words, we have to start thinking about institutions from the standpoint of institutionality. What does it mean to have an institution? And an institution, and this is getting back to, I think, what I was saying to either uh, Mamadou or, or Christian earlier, you know, one of the things that Marxism thinks about is institutions in kind of objective, empirical, and tactile forms, even though Marx did a very good job of showing how surplus labor flows in a way that is not always tactile. But it can't, it can't really help us think precisely about how to have an institution is to have a unconscious consensus of what value is and where it comes from. And I think that this is why I, I get so much more for Afro-pessimism 
uh, out of black skin, white mass, especially when, when Fanon talks about Mayat Capetia, in which, you know, he's been chided for denigrating a black woman. But if you read Tracy Dean and Sharpie Whiting's Fanon and Feminisms, what you what you'll see is not that Fanon is a feminist, but that what he is saying is that Mayat Capetia suffered from a kind of negrophobogenesis and, and lactification, a, a sense of herself as a phobic object in a sense that she could only, her only object, her only alternatives were to turn white or disappear, which is why she washed the laundry so white, which is why she poured ink on the head of a schoolmate. And all of a sudden, at, at a certain point in her adult life, she finds out that her grandmother was a white Canadian. And that begins to change her whole bodily makeup and the sense of herself as a person and allows her to think of herself in a kind of tangible contradistinction between herself and other Black women who are uncouth, in quotes, and sexually promiscuous, in quotes, and not, and not valuable. And it's that kind of value that comes out of the, the libidinal economy, which is as important to making the structure of a bank, of a school, of a library, of a government as the uh, concrete, as the concrete bricks and mortar and the money that flow from it. I'm looking here for a quote by Jarrett Sexton in my second book, if I can find it, which then will help me sum up what I was saying. So I think it's page seven here. Yes. So this is for your listeners. This is on page seven of Red, White, and Black. And I write here, Jared Sexton describes libidinal, libidinal economy as, quote, the economy or distribution and arrangement of desire and identification, their condensation and displacement, and the complex relationship between sexuality and the unconscious. Needless to say, Libidinally economy functions variously across scales and is as, quote, ob as objective as political economy. It is linked not only to forms of attraction, affection, and alliance, but also to aggression, destruction, and the violence of lethal consumption. consumption. Sexton emphasizes that libidinal economy is, quote, the whole structure of psychic and emotional life and something more but inclusive of or traversed by what Gramsci and Marx have called a structure of suffering, sorry, a structure of feeling. Libidinal economy is a dispensation of energies, concerns, points of attention, anxieties, pleasures, appetites, revulsions, and here's the key word, and phobias capable of both great mobility and tenacious fixation. So the great mobility the great mobility in this in this phobia is once I find out I have a little bit of something else in me, I have social currency. Even if even if no one sees me differently when I walk outside, I can actually move. And this is what he he talked about. Uh, I have access to something that I was barred from ab initio, access to civil society. And this is how he described the interracial relationship as desire for access. So I think that, that we, have to, um, we have to think about all the things that Sexton listed as the economy as being as vital 
to making up an institution, be it at a scale of the family or a scale of the nation, as as vital to the to the makeup of institutionality as the more tangible things that we say make up a, a world. Thank you so much for that. And thank you so much for reading Sexton's definition of the liberal economy. I kind of have two questions and I'm trying to think about how to phrase this. So obviously, like in the conception of the liberal economy, a lot of that comes from Leotard's work, right? Or is that or or is the conception of the liberal economy for the purposes of Afro-pessimism distinct from Leotard's? I honestly can't remember. <laughs> and thank you. That's good. You offer me a yeah. little grace when I ask this question. The thing that troubles me, and you know, I've had complicated relationship with Afro pessimism. There was a time where I was so subsumed by it and so awoken, awakened by it, and there was a time where I was deeply, deeply resentful of it. And I think this is just the nature of. Whoa, Jack! <laughs> this is, this is right, just the nature ahead. of you know. I think trying to develop a sort of like sense of oneself, especially as you're engaging with sort of black politics. And I come from historically a sort of, I would say black Marxist tradi- tradition, I would say an Nkrumahist tradition, a Sankarist tradition. And that's been like a big part of my, not only kind of like self-identity, but also my, my kind of political analysis and my, my academic life. So not to wander off, but to get back to the point, I think what troubled me is, so I kind of had a look at Leotard a little bit and looked at the kind of original conception of his ideas. And what was interesting was that, so prior to, obviously Black Skin White Mask existed or was created by Fanon prior to his engagement and prior to his placement in Algeria, especially specifically during the Algerian revolution. And what was interesting was that Lyotard himself was actually a a, a French Marxist, right? Who joined the revolutionary efforts in Algeria. And he comes up with the libidinal economy post Algerian war, post his stationing. And I felt like it was interesting because you had Fanon, who was quite deeply kind of psychoanalytic, but obviously stretching psychoanalysis in a way that was quite revolutionary for, for its time in black skin, white masks. But in engaging in the context of Algeria, leaves a little bit more, I think, kind of grounded in a sort of revolutionary kind of idea, a little bit more grounded in a sort of critical kind of Marxism and Leotard enters as a Marxist and leaves as less of one. And that's what I wondered. I was kind of like, well, why are we following kind of Leotard if that's who we're following? And obviously that's not necessarily the case and not like Fanon in his work. And why are we not kind of, because I felt like Fanon became more of a sort of materialist, more of a sort of Marxist. Yes, he did. Yeah. And the question I suppose is, a white man from France comes to the Algerian revolution, leaves lesser revolutionary. You know, a black man enters the, the context of Algerian war, leaves more kind of Marxist, more revolutionary. So yeah, like, why are we not following kind of, well, I suppose this is less about you, but less uh, more about the way I think Afro-Pessim is articulated, following his trajectory more, I suppose. Yeah, I, I want to struggle with you a bit. Oh, I don't know how to do this. Here's what I think. I I I I think that I, I wouldn't say that because I haven't read Leotard in about six years. And when I would think of a libidinal economy, I'd go back to Sexton's quote, and I would and I would think about my, myself, what's what's possible and what's impossible through a more Lacanian realm of the symbolic and its relationship to the imaginary. But the, what, but I'll bracket that for a moment. I don't want to say that Fanon left. I don't want to struggle with you to say that Fanon left more as a less as a revolutionary. What I want to say is that I think that we and that and that 
leotard left less as a revolutionary. There can be I, ideas and thoughts that explain Black suffering, and they don't, I would say, they don't necessarily have to come from Black people. I'm not sure that the assumptive logic in much of the rest of the earth has the revolutionary potential as the assumptive logic in black skin, white mass. I think that if you, that if you, and that's because I'm not a black Marxist, although as I've been saying to Christian and Mamadou, I, I am an anti-capitalist and I often teach volume one of Capital in a grad seminar, but there is an alibi that is kind of wedged into the rest of the earth that I'm not comfortable with. And that is when he concretizes suffering with respect to land and bread. And, and that's, that's where I part with him because at that moment I say to myself, okay, this is, uh, and we're all black here, so I'm gonna just speak without censorship or, dip, or diplomacy because, because thank you. Okay. <laughs> I'm just assuming that you know how much I love Fanon. I think that 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 he is kind of invested in a kind of of a word I learned in South Africa over five years called Ubuntu, or goodwill or humanness, that has no business thinking through the essential suffering of blackness. Number one and number two is a form of Ubuntu that is an expression of compassion and solidarity to the Algerians, who are just as racist against sub-Saharan Africans as, as the French are. So I think that what he's onto in Black Skin, White Mass, I said when he's onto something in Black Skin, White Mass, he was, he's, as he's, I can feel him rolling in his grave as I'm talking right now, completely disagreeing with me. But as I tell my class, you know, I hope David Marriott is here for a very long time. But when David Marriott dies and goes to heaven, he will be able to explain uh, Franz Fanon's work to him in a way that Fanon never understood himself. And <laughs> yeah, so why do I say why do I say this black slash Jamaican slash Brit can explain Fanon's work to him better? Is because Fanon his his authorial intention is is like a tripwire that does not allow him to think through the the comprehensive catastrophe that he has exposed. He's a humanist, and he fundamentally believes in some type of redress or redemption as a conceptual possibility. And yet, and that's, and that's precisely what he's onto in, in The Rich of the Earth. Give us the land, give us the bread, we will be free. And that's a bunch of bullshit when it comes to Black people. But in, in Black Skin, White Mass, he is a ship without a mooring. He's, he has no oars, there's no anchor. And the, the grasping at straws to try to bring about some type of, of, of way to say that the Black could be seen as human is, is rather ridiculous in that book because the evidence is so traumatically on the other side. But you have to learn how to read, which I, didn't, which I could not do until, until I was in, in college, sorry, in grad school. Sorry, black and White Mass has to be read as a revolutionary intervention for its analysis of suffering, not for its prescription or tactical suggestions about Lenin's question, what is to be done? And once you get there, 
then you find that here is ascension being a priori without land, a priori without bread, a priori without knowledge, a priori, a priori without, without hegemonic agency. That doesn't mean black people don't think you're four, uh, three, four of us are four brilliant black people right now. But if a tree falls in the forest and there's no one to hear it, has there been sound? That's the question of black existence. I'm just sitting with what you're saying and rethinking and, and thinking. And <laughs> I guess the question then becomes like, if we're talking about no land, no bread, that makes sense in the question when we think about like enslavement and the diaspora and people who are descendant of, of enslaved people. But that question does feel personal when we think about the African context and the types of revolutions that were kind of being fought against colonialism. So if we look at like, for example, the case of somewhere like Ivory Coast, there seems to be that kind of similarity with Algeria. And I feel like that's where that kind of compassion from Fanon is coming from in understanding that in the context of various African revolutions in and of themselves, that was the primary kind of locus of the fight. It was about land and it was about bread and it was about a conception of freedom to try and allow people who were so alienated from a conception of human to actually reclaim and, and, and give them the possibility of, of thinking through themselves as human. And I suppose, yeah, absolutely. And I suppose the, the point now is that, is our analysis, if we are to engage with an Afro-pessimist analysis of black suffering, is there still utility in trying to recapture? Is there still utility in those of us who are somewhat humanist, black Marxists, who are trying to struggle for whatever conception of freedom for black folk? Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm not a black nihilist. I've, I've spent, you know, five and a half years in South Africa struggling peacefully and violently for very specific things. Uh, which didn't come about, by the way. <laughs> I was not an Afro-pessimist, you know, revolutionary. I was. I wanted nationalization of the banks. Wanted to renege on the IMF loans. These are all things. These are all political desires under a kind of rubric of that was kind of led by people like Chris Hani and Winnie Mandela, and and not Nelson Mandela, and not Thabo Mbeki, and, and and not Cyril Ramaphosa, and certainly not Jacob Zuma. Or on the other side, they were like, they're like uh, Yasser Arafat. They just want a squatter cap and a flag. But at the same time, um, and I think all those things, are, you, you one one must, I believe, with the PAC, you know, uh, one settler, one bullet, <laughs> which was their slogan, or or the young, the young lions in Soweto, kill the farmer, kill the boer, get get the you know only only eleven percent of the land in South Africa can be farmed, eleven percent. And it's and eighty percent of that land is owned by white corporate farmers. Yes, get give it all back. But but no, don't fool ourselves to think that once that happens, that something essential would have happened, would have changed in the paradigm of anti-blackness. And so I think we can have two trains running which is the train, uh, this is what I, which is kind of how I organized Afro-pessimist workshops when I was doing a lot of work for Black Lives Matter contingencies, you know, two trains running. You've got to stop the police from killing people right now. And that's what you're about, the end of police brutality, some kind of police accountability. And yet here I am for these six hours to talk to you about how anti-Black violence is not contingent upon transgression. 
there has to be anti-black violence because it's a psychic bomb, B-A-L-M, that, that allows other people to know that they're alive. It's not, as Marx said, a form of carrot and whip for production. Anti-black violence is necessary to the, to the psychic health of the world. And if that psychic health, if you take anti-black violence away, then that, that psychic health disintegrates. So we need, we need to deal with the situation on the ground, so to speak, in terms of empirical and kind of phenomenal manifestations. But at the same time, you know, yourself, Khadija, out of, out of Ghana comes the book, The Beautiful Ones Are Not Yet Born. And that is one of the most dystopic <laughs> novels that, you know, what was funny, I was teaching that book to a group of, of South African students who were going, to, who were at a liberation school, meaning they had been in detention camps and tortured and, and as a result had not uh, finished their high school education. And if they could get into this school, the university, Indiana University would allow their classes to have, to be credited as two university classes and the white people of the English universities would take them into college. So that was a very structural thing to get former revolutionaries who were high school people into, into college. But, you know, when I taught that book, they said to me, that is, that is a dystopic view of what happened in Ghana. And it can never happen here with our socialist revolution. Well, it has happened, hasn't it? Yes. <laughs> you know, because the moment that, the moment that Mandela took power, the, the kind of economic moment, we see the South African rand. Now, I, I must say that the, the economic, the, the, the economic fundamentals of South Africa did not change one iota in April 1994. In fact, the economic fundamentals were secured by Thabo Mbeki in the Codesa negotiations in which he assured, behind, our, behind the backs of the revolutionaries in the ANC, which he secured a deal which said that the new government would continue to pay the IMF and World Bank loans and would not renege on those loans as the people following Chris Haney and Winnie Mandela said they would. So in other words, capitalism was more entrenched, which is something the British have been telling the Boers for 20 years, release Mandela from prison, create a black middle class. We will secure, we'll have a secure capitalist economic foundation because the middle class will, will allow themselves and just desire to be kind of like um, the, the parvenu that, that Fanon talks about, or just go-betweens. And we will not lose any industrial or mining power if we do this. Well, Tabo and Becky secured that psychically and as a matter of contract for de Klerk and all white South Africans. And yet, and yet, we begin to see after that a free fall in the value of the RAN to the point where when I arrived in South Africa, $1 was like one RAN 25. Today, $1 is about 15 Rand. Nothing in the fundamentals early on changed. It's that the perception of the world changed from it being a white country to a black country. And it's that perception of the libidinal economy, which comes down like a ton of bricks on people to determine their life and death possibilities. Yeah, actually, so I, I guess my, my questions that I had were really about the unconscious and black agency. And one thing that struck me, like when you were answering Khadija, was 
the comment about white people being right sometimes, but I think what the first question I want to ask was about at the end of that chapter that I referenced earlier, chapter six, you actually ask the question, who is writing this book? And it's because earlier on you talk about you're, you're not necessarily speaking through you. You're speaking through the voice and the gaze of a mob and this mob being white Americans. So then I guess who, who is writing your book? Uh, who has the agency to write your book? Can it be? Can you write through or speak through the the category of black? And I guess additionally, in in a conversation you were having with Sadia Hartman, there was talk about performance. There was talk about, and you said, "quote What's most interesting about your argument is the way in which you demonstrate not only is the slaves' performance, dance, music, etc." the property of white enjoyment, but so is, and this is really key, the slave's own enjoyment of his slash her performance. That too belongs to white people. And I was watching this lecture given by Sheldon George, and he was talking about, and he was putting forth this like uh, psychoanalytic or libidinal argument, asserting that jouissance or enjoyment are demonstrations that black people have some agency and ownership with regards to performance, that joy is is a symbol uh, is representative of the fact that they in that they have some ownership of their performance. So I guess what do you say say to that as well? I would not want to uh, duke it out with Sheldon George, given the fact that I've just been reading novels for a year. But I would probably <laughs> I would probably say Bah Humbug. I guess I do know and I don't know. I'm going to say what I don't know first, and I'll, now, then I'll correct my, contradict myself and say I do know. I say I don't know why we need this this word agency when Afro-pessimism has actually analyzed agency as being constitutive of all that is not social death. In other words, in other words, in semiotics, to know something, to know anything. The word itself has no organic link to reality, to the phenomenon in the word, in the world. The word only gets value through first its antonym, its its absolute contradistinction to another to another word. So it's so the word gets value through its through what it is not, and then it gets supplemental value in a kind of ancillary way to what it is kind of like, you know, like cat is kind of like tiger or leopard or panther, but it is absolute, but it is structurally feline and feline can only be known at the end of the day through what it is not. And so one of the, one of the, one of the, the emotional desire for agency that all black people feel, I feel it myself, but I wouldn't trust myself when I say I have agency or when I declare it, I would, I would only trust, I would only say that that declaration that I have agency is, is a symptom of my deep sense of abandonment. That declaration that I have agency is a symptom of my deep sense of abandonment, my deep sense of, of banishment, my deep sense of, of, of exile. Because agency, in order to be defined, needs its absolute other. 
And and this is where I would go back to Orlando Patterson. If if we think of the three constituent elements of social death, general dishonor, which is dishonor prior to and without the need of a transgression, and gene, genealogical isolation, which is to say that it is not essential what the black person or the slash slave thinks about their relations. What is essential is that the world does not give us the capacity for relationality. And then gratuitous violence, which is to say that um, the violence that other people experience that looks like ours, such as lynchings and police shootings, is actually triggered by a kind of real or imagined contingency and violence against us which, and our openness to it is not triggered by anything except for the need for that repetition to happen. This is what David Merritt is talking about when he talks about lynchings. Lynchings are not a form of discrimination. It's not a way of keeping Black people down. It's a way of building the psychic life of white community. And so if, if, we, are, if we are the widgets who must be destroyed ritualistically to build the psychic life of agents, how can we have agency? Instead, what we should be doing is critiquing, condemning, and obliterating agency as a category, the end of the world. Now, that's a lot easier to say in a 90-minute interview than it is to do day to day. And I fail every morning with my deep anxiety and, and emotional trauma. But there it is. That's my answer. I guess like my follow-up and like in watching that that lecture, one of the responses, is, and actually it begins with with addressing social death. And it begins by positing that social death is not necessarily the condition under which Black people inhabit, but, but is, it is an aspiration of that is that Black people are being subjected to. That it's not necessarily, that it is, it is not necessarily the condition to black people and that the demonstration of of joy through performance through culture through music is evidence that social death has not yet fully been implemented i guess oh that's bullshit <laughs> yeah I mean, yeah i you know i used to teach in prison and sometimes we did we did music and and uh, sang and danced, so, you know. But you know, at the end of the day, some people stayed, and some people went home. <laughs> you know. And what I'm trying to say is that black life is incarcerated life from birth to death. I would I would call upon someone who makes that assertion that there's some kind of excess with respect to performativity who can get you out of that paradigm. I would just say prove it. I guess. I guess the mm, <laughs> you're not convinced. Okay, it, no, no, no. I, I guess my, my question is just like it's not necessarily that that it gets you out of the paradigm. It's that the paradigm was never reached. I guess is the yeah. Oh, I, I, yeah. Well, see, see, I would, I that that uh, he would have to do more work, which would be to to actually the the work then would be to a say. What is his archive that allows him to make an assertion about social death, which I don't think he would make about Marx, about capitalism? I mean, in other words, I can't, I can't imagine someone like that saying that, that, hey, 
the capitalist relation does not saturate the globe. I think everyone says the capitalist relation saturates the globe. There's nowhere that you can go to be outside of the relational dynamic, exploitation, and alienation. And so I would ask the person to say, okay, what archive are you reading? And then how are you making the argument that the anti-Black relation does not saturate the globe? Because I think it does. And I can show you my archive and my arguments. No, I was just thinking on that point, and it reminded me of something that I started to consider in Zakir Iman Jackson's work on um, the plasticity. And I think it's a conversation I've had with others. And I think the position we were at is, how are we understanding anti-Black violence? How are we defining the terrains of anti-Black violence? Because I think for many people who oftentimes engage with Afro-pessimist thought, they're accessing it and they have a conception of Blackness that looks like a particular form of Blackness, whether it be in an African Blackness or a Black American Blackness or a diaspora Blackness that looks kind of essentially Black in the types of way that we would consider the kind of cartographies of like the Negro, et cetera, et cetera. But in the case of, for example, the Dalit, in the case of the Australian, the Indigenous Australian, there is still sort of an anti-blackness that exists and persists there, but its legibility is a lot more difficult if you are focusing solely on a conception of blackness that has to look like African, if you get what I mean. Yeah. And, and see, that's, you know, I, I, my, my, my hat is off to Orlando Patterson because one of the things that the Dalit is part of a caste system. There are Dalits and there are Blacks and they do not exist in the same paradigmatic structure. And there are Blacks in India who are, who are, who are enslaved. And, the, and Blackness in Australia is a, has cultural accoutrement insinuated, attached, or implied in the word. And, and I'm, I'm, what I'm trying to do is, what Afro-pessimists are trying to do is, is to, in the first instance, relieve the word Black of, of cultural accoutrement and to say that even the word diaspora, when it comes to Africa, is a form of pure dispersal. Because when you think about the indigenous diaspora or the Indian diaspora, there are two kind of elements inside of the word diaspora for, you know, for those groups of people. One is the element, what I just spoke of, of diasporic people, dispersed people. But the other is the element that diasporic people come from somewhere. And the thing that Afro-pessimism is, is arguing is that Blackness, that is dispersal without an a priori home. And so it's a very different, it's a very different usage of the word. We're, we're using the word as a paradigmatic position. And, and the confusion is, is that there are people who still want to use the word in terms of a kind of, of a cultural marker or a national marker or a kind of anthropological set of accoutrement. No, no one would do that with the word worker. No one would do that with the word worker and say it is specific to a nation, is specific to an identity, is specific to a culture. Worker is a global category, an umbrella, under which there are hundreds of thousands of gendered categories, language categories, uh, racial categories, national categories. 
it is not struggling to make itself known at that level. It is a it is a paradigmatic position that explains a relational dynamic between the haves and the have-nots. Blackness is a paradigmatic position for us that explains a relational dynamic between those who have relational capacity and those who are not allowed to have it at all. Thank you so much. And that does lead to my final question, actually, and I think we'll wrap up. Speaking about relational capacity and those who have the ability to possibly achieve within civic society, my question comes, and this is something I always you know, often go back and forth with those who self-define as Afro-pessimists. Is it when we're thinking about notions of solidarity with those in Palestine, for example, is it that, say, if I adopt an Afro-pessimist lens, am I saying that, are we saying that it's a recognition that, okay, anti-Blackness still exists amongst these places and that what it would be seen as revolutionary change for Palestine will not be afforded to or can never be afforded to under the current world order for black people but we can still have solidarity and still recognize that it's an issue of settler colonialism or would an afro-pessimist position be that we should not get involved at all afro-pessimism wouldn't give you any advice okay (laughs) but it would say that a liberated palestine could be just as bad for a black person as a fascist tel aviv that does not mean that one should it, it does not. It does not mean dot dot dot. It's a. It's a. We're, I'm coming back full circle to where we began. It's a. It's a meta critique, and clearly, emotionally, politically, like Khadija, I come out of a long Marxist tradition. Clearly, my my proclivities never go to Israel. They always go to Palestine. At the same time, I have to re- recognize the fact that when I did. I did a six-hour workshop for 35 Black Lives Black Lives Matter leaders in New York City. It was very nice. Many years ago, well, I don't know, maybe six years ago, at the Audubon Ballroom, which was now the Malcolm X Center. And one of the things they said is that they had gone on a solidarity tour to Palestine, and before they went, they had told the their the people that were going to be showing them around, the Palestinians, that they wanted to meet Black Palestinians. And the the people in Palestine said, oh, yeah, that'll be great. That'll be great. But when they got there, you know, after two weeks of asking, they were never allowed to meet Black Palestinians. When they finally found a way to meet Black Palestinians on their own, these people who are Black in in West Bank and Gaza told them the most horrific stories about how they were treated as Black people in places that are completely bombed and, and invaded by the Israelis. And the same thing is true in, in Tel Aviv, you know, when you think about Ethiopian Jews and the way that they're treated and the, de- the degree to which the N-word is used in Israel. So I'm just trying to say that anti-Blackness is necessary to the psychic life of Palestine and is necessary to the psychic life and the, and the, and the conceptual integrity of Israel alike. That doesn't mean that I don't have any political lack of compassion for the Palestinian people. And it doesn't mean I changed my stripes from being anti-Israeli to being pro-Israeli. It just means that the world is anti-Black. And we need to face that analytically, because if we don't, then, you know, as we grow older, we'll be telling young Black people who face it intuitively or old Black people who come to it 
really like a real revelation at the end of their lives that there's something you could have done to make life better, or you should think differently, or you shouldn't have all this rage instead of thinking about that as as a kind of uh, as a form of of resistance and and trying to figure out well where does that come from? When I was at Columbia, Columbia was gentrifying Harlem, you know, as it had been doing at least since 1960. Still is, still is. Okay, thank you. Thank you. I, I mean, it was just terrible. You know, they were putting up these. I lived on 122nd and Broadway, and you could go into these buildings and you could see these little signs by the mailbox saying that. Uh, Columbia now owns this building and you have 12 months to become a student or a worker or have some form of formal relationship with Columbia University or else you must leave. So that was like just pushing Harlem further uptown, further uptown and gentrifying people into the wet, wintry oblivion. And in this period, you know, it was the period when AIDS was, was starting and there were these black girls, high school age, who were at some point running up and down between uh, like 118th and Broadway down to like 115th during the noon hour when professors and people would be out and they'd be sticking people with uh, hypodermic needles and they'd say, now you got AIDS and they'd run off, you know? Well, these girls were demonized as wicked and evil and cruel and um, no one took the time to think through this form of violence as having roots in what Columbia meant to them in their lives, in the way that, that Fanon thinks through the violence of the lumpen proletariat, which has no direction in its, in its first stages, the way he thinks through that violence in the retro of the earth. It was just completely evil, completely condemned, and completely without r- rationale. And so we really need to become not so invested in our plans and our possibilities and our joy, but to remember to become worthy of our suffering and look our suffering squarely in the face. And that's what Afro-pessimism tries to do. And thank you so much for your time, Professor Alderson. It's been a, I hope it's been an enjoyable conversation for you as it was for us. Yeah, truly. I really appreciate this. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. We really enjoyed it.